higher and friendlier powers. Higher and friendly powers. Uh, oh, <laughs> higher and friendly powers. See, now you said it like three times, and now people will totally remember. Higher and friendly powers. I'm Carl. I'm an alcoholic. My sobriety day is August 22nd, 2014. And, you and I'm are... Peg, and my sobriety date is August 1st, 1987. 87. Wow. That's 87. crazy. Was oh my God, what was I college. doing in 87? What was I doing in 87? Oh, never mind. Hold on. Okay. I got to do the reading. Okay. Sober Pod is a podcast about recovery that doesn't sound like a podcast about recovery. We are not experts or professionals, just a varying number of deeply flawed individuals with good intentions. If you would like to hear about the 12 steps, check out season two of 2019 uh, of that podcast. And we had a years long coverage, like 50 plus shows and uh, and it goes without saying that we do not speak for any recovery groups or organizations. And as always, we encourage you to listen in moderation. So don't, uh, you know, don't obsess too much. Um, so a couple side notes, a couple show notes um, is that Chelsea is not with us today. And who I have on is uh, Peg O'Connor. Say hi to the pretty people, Peg. Hello, pretty people. I'm so glad to be here. <laughs> Awesome. Um, so Peg O'Connor is here because, and it's Doctor O'Connor, right? I yeah, mean, but I don't. I only ever use my title usually when I'm writing to elected officials to ream them out about some stupid policy decision. So I just go by Peg. But still, but you earned it. I think you should be able to use it at least. I just, you know, I mean, I use it I judiciously. I use it judiciously. I don't <laughs> use it as a cudgel. <laughs> so, um, so you have. Uh, you know, I'm in, I'm talking to you because you've written a book. Uh, it is uh, the name of the book is I'm going to get it right again. Is higher and friendly powers. It's transforming addiction and suffering. Uh, it's I mean it's available. I mean I guess you could just go to your website, uh, pegoconnorauthor.com, uh, or like the publisher of Wild House Publications. And you could also go to Amazon. You know, find it wherever you know these books are sold, kind of a thing. Um, so uh, can you uh, just give me a brief excerpt, like, you know, whatever the, you know, the, the, the jacket, uh, you know, copy would be on this? So the elevator pitch is this, that yeah. the, concept, yeah. the concept of higher power is one that we think of always in association with AA. And within AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, it's equated with a providential God who has a will for us and who is going to remove our defects of character. And that notion of God is one that has kept many people away from Alcoholics Anonymous who might otherwise have benefited. So this book, Higher and Friendly Powers, goes back to the source of that term, higher power, to William James, an American philosopher, psychologist, 1842 to 1910. And he argued that there are as many higher powers as there are individuals in the world. Anything larger will do if it helps you to take the next step to transform suffering in a variety of forms. So this is an attempt to bring William James back into the discussion of addiction studies and at the same time, hopefully help people to come to see that whatever they decide as a higher power can function as a higher power for them. And just so that we're like starting to get into the grass, like what is your background in terms of uh, a couple things, your, your path to recovery and also like your uh, uh, resolve of a higher power? Like why did you, you know, write this book, I guess, is the other thing. Well, let's start with, I wrote this book for me and people like me, who as a very young person, I tried AA. I tried it as a college sophomore, I think it was. And I remember walking into the rooms, and I know many people say they walk into the rooms and they felt like they were home. I did not feel like I was home because I had been raised Catholic, and that notion of a God like that was one that I found very hostile and very unforgiving. Mm -hmm. And it definitely kept me away from AA for decades. So I was sober for 19 years before I dipped my toe back into the AA waters. Um, and so, I'm in and out so of you AA. Managed, yep, go ahead. Yeah, you got sober on your own? Like you, like you just decided? I that, did. You know, I did. Like, yep. I, I made how, a very intentional decision. Um, it was, I say... Um, I got sober by accident, both literally and metaphorically. Uh, right after college graduation, yeah. I was in a terrible car accident where I got T-boned oh. and um, could have been killed or could have been hurt far worse. And so I was in the hospital 
in Connecticut. And I remember the nurse came around and was, you know, gauging my pain levels because pain now is taken as one of the vital things that they're always measuring. And I remember feeling as if I were at a grocery store with a great huge, you know, sample platter of different kinds of pain medications. And I had the distinct thought, so this was 1987, Betty Ford, here I come. I knew that if I started mm -hmm. taking the pain medications that they offered that given my history with alcohol and how I was an overachiever as a drinker, uh, I had good reason to believe that I'd be an overachiever in taking pain medications. And, and I didn't, I didn't want to do that. And so, yeah, yeah. you know, I decided that I was going to decline the pain medications. And then when I got out of the hospital, I realized I hadn't had a drink in a couple of weeks and I decided to treat it like a big experiment. How long could I go? Cause I had mm. tried quitting numerous times and then I had started numerous times plus one. And, uh, I wanted to see how long my experiment could last. And treating it as an experiment for me keeps me in a very active relationship with it. It's something I don't take for granted. It's something that is ongoing. And I understand that I could make different choices at any time of day or night. And I choose not to drink. And I choose to stick with what I know, which is my life can be very good when I don't have drugs and alcohol at the center of them. And what I also know mm -hmm. is that when drugs and alcohol were at the center of my existence, that I was a mess and I don't want to be like that anymore. So, you know, for me, what was a higher power, given what I said about how much I struggled with it? Um, I think I had to come to believe in myself that I could keep a promise to myself because I'd broken so many promises. Oh, I mm. won't drink or I'll only have yeah. two drinks or I am, you know. And these are all to yourself, right? All to myself. Sometimes I would kind of publicly yeah. say it to others. So, you know, there'd be a little accountability, but I would just, you know, quickly dash past yeah. that. Um, but for me, a higher power was coming to have a little self-trust and belief in myself. And that was enough for me to kind of, um, what would be the expression? I'm, I'm not a rock climber, but it was enough for me to kind of set something where I could attach my rope to it, that I could, you know, get a foot, I could get a toe hold, I could get a finger hold onto something. And that was my higher power mm -hmm. that I had to discover that that was in me, that I had the ability to mm -hmm. keep promises to myself and to my others, that I could trust myself because I think losing trust in yourself is a very early and utterly catastrophic loss as we develop in our addictions. Myself mm -hmm. oh, my self trust shot. I mean, I <laughs> you, I mean, you're totally speaking my language. That is for sure because you know I, uh, I, I did the, I did a very similar path because I came into AA. Uh, actually, ironically, I was, uh, I was in, uh, I was in St. Cloud uh, State Hospital when I when I was oh. uh, 15 years old. That's where I went to my first treatment center, um, and I think it was like 1988. <laughs> Okay, so that's what you were doing. <laughs> so, yeah, that's probably what I was doing. So, yeah, so, uh, so, um. And I, I could not have you could not say the God word to me not one time. And it was like I, I just could not hear it. And uh, and and even to, uh, you know, this last time at 42 years old, I still could not I could not fully digest the the big G.O.D. word as I walked back into AA desperate to to change what, you know, was going on inside my head. Uh, so. Um, so I did a lot of that. I, I looked at it as, um, you know, I got into Buddhism. I got into Taoism. I got, you know, if I had an ism, I was going to attach onto it, <laughs> you know? So, um, so, you know, that was for me. And I started to look towards a higher self and I started to have some of that same idea that you're talking about, just a, a resemblance of that, that like, I, you know, I never kept promises to myself. I was always betraying myself. I, you know, I never kept my promises. It's exactly like that. So I totally relate to that 100%. Well, and I think um, that, I don't know that why I'm not cussing as much, you know, so. Now, I was going to say that what, betrayal that? language is so strong. Talking about betrayal, the way we betrayed ourselves. You know, if you say, oh, I broke yeah, promises yeah. to myself, it's it's kind of, it sounds kind of, you know, mealy mouthed. But to talk about I betrayed myself is so, mm -hmm. it's so much more accurate and so much more tragic at times and, and yeah, debilitating yeah. At, at other times. I mean, the kinds of damage that we inflict on ourselves. I mean, for sure, we inflict damage on others. But, you know, I think we have a tendency to shortchange and not fully address the damage we cause to our own self. And, mm -hmm. and I think that if we don't address that damage, 
you know, no matter where we go, there we are. Yeah. You know, we've, we've kind of laid down the tracks for continuing on that. You know, I don't know what I think of the category of self-sabotage. I think that's one that in pop psychology has gotten overblown too much. It's just too easy to say that. Yeah, but yeah. that, you know, unless and until we know when each of us knows what we're up against in our own selves, then we have a mighty struggle. I mean, and that's a great source of suffering that when you feel mm -hmm. alienated from yourself, when you feel like you're a stranger to yourself, I mean, that moment when we look in the mirror or you see a reflection of yourself and you don't know who you are and you don't know how the heck you got mm -hmm. here. What mm -hmm. you do know is you're yeah, here and this is the last place you want to be. <laughs> part, of, part of my, part of my spiel or my share is, uh, you know, uh, you know I'll, I'll be like, I don't know, maybe six or seven drinks in when I was drinking and I, uh, you know, I step into my downstairs bathroom and it has a big, large mirror. And, you know, and, you know, of course, I'm you know facing the mirror as I go to the bathroom and I look up and I see this dude that I do not recognize. And I have this like, you know, I just just disgust for that dude in the mirror. I'm like, you know, you son of a bitch. How did you get here again? You know, and um, and it's just it is uh, that self-loathing goes beyond just self-sabotage. You know, it you know, when you're when you cannot separate from the person you want to separate from you know, entirely, uh, you can't break free at all for any reason. Uh, it's painful. It really is painful. You know, it's like every day you wake up, it's like, oh, this shit again. You know, it's like, you well, know, this I'm shit this again. again. Yes. So, yeah, yeah. That you're hurling yeah. at yourself. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's the whole thing, right? I mean, you're yeah, at yeah. war with yourself. You're yeah. divided. You want inconsistent, if not mm -hmm. contradictory kinds of things. And you, you hold yourself to unmeetable standards. I mean, I think that's, that's the other piece of it. As much as we might hate ourselves, many of us were still perfectionists and talk about a recipe for disaster. You know, I mean, that perfectionism is yeah. utterly debilitating and it's it's yep. it's too easy to fall into that. And then we always have the justification for, oh, well, I should drink because I did screw that up. I knew I was going to screw that up, but I shouldn't screw up. It's like, well, hello. So how did I get to feel so different? <laughs> Exactly. So in the in the great experiment um, that you're performing on your sobriety, which is like, you know, 20 years of it. So what made you um, what made you go back into uh, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous? What was your or are you back in Alcoholics Anonymous? I guess is the question. I'm, um, I'm in and out. I'm, I'm in and out. Did, OK. Yeah. Yeah. Fair, fair play. Okay. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. I, I think it has a lot to do with we as people are always changing. Right. That's one of the great things about being a human mm -hmm. being is, you know, we we are always becoming ourselves. We're becoming a new self, a different self, a better self, a worse self. I mean, that we're always we're in process with no final arrival point. And I think that as we change. So I had been sober for 19 years. I came to realize that I needed to do my sobriety differently. I needed different things. I was in a different point in my life from when I first sobered up when I was just shy of 22. And then I'm in my, you know, early 40s where I've got a career, I've got a full life and all these other things. And I woke up one morning and felt like I'm a mouse running around the trim board of my own life. I don't recognize my own mm. life. So it was this weird kind of feel like Yogi Berra, deja vu all over again. It was this weird <laughs> deja vu of looking in a mirror and not recognizing myself, not because I was drinking, I wasn't drinking. But something had been happening in my life where I described it as functioning on a very high level autopilot. And I had a, a great life and I was doing what I should be doing, you know, career markers and all that. And I felt like the lights are on, but I'm not home. And so who's running my life? What is what is going on here? So I thought, uh oh, um, it's like the old dad. Uh oh, better get Mako. Um, I better get. Mm -hmm busy being more attentive to my sobriety, because if that goes out the window, then everything else probably will go at some point or everything else won't go, but I'll do some harm that I really don't want to do. So I had met some new friends who were in AA and I thought, well, they're pretty cool. You know, they're not big book thumpers. They're not Bible thumpers. They're kind of regular mm -hmm. people like me, you know, whether agnostic or, you know, deeply suspicious mm -hmm. of organized religions. And I thought, well, they're pretty cool. So I started hanging out with a different group of people who were in AA. And my mm -hmm. lack of ease with the program always remained, though. I, I will always struggle with how it works. I will always struggle 
with part of the languages of the steps. And I know each meeting is its own entity and you can make up your own rules. But for me, closing with the Our Father is a very exclusionary kind of practice. You know, I like meetings that close yeah, with yeah. the responsibility statement. I am responsible Pledge, when anyone yeah, 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 anywhere yeah. reaches out for help. I want the hand of AA to always be there. And for that, I'm responsible. When you're looking at each other, you know, when you're looking right at someone else, I'm looking into your face, Carl, and I see you as a human mm -hmm. being struggling and embattled or thriving or trying your best or, or muddling. That's what makes the connection. Mm -hmm. For me, that's a direct connection between yeah, yeah. two individuals in AA, unmediated yeah. by the program, unmediated by a providential God. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's this this podcast was established basically on that premise alone, right? That that you know, one addict or alcoholic helping another addict is like the like the cornerstone of, mm -hmm. you know, recovery. Like it is where it begins. It's like, you know, uh, that's how it started. That's how AA yep. started, right? You know, and so that's you know, to me it's like and it even says it most of the time. It's like where any two people meet or two addicts or alcoholics meet, that's the that's yeah. you can call that a meeting, right? So um so, you know, I started this, you know, to help my buddy uh, uh, have some accountability in maintaining his sobriety. <laughs> and then okay. you know, 30 days later, he he went to uh, he went uh, went back out drinking. <laughs> and then he called me two years later and said he finally got a year sober. Right. But I still did right. the podcast, you know. Yeah. So. Um, so, uh, yeah. And I so I, I truly relate to that. So are you. Are you active in AA or not as active? Are you like on the, uh, you, you go just on occasion? Is that how that works? I just go on occasion. Um, you know, and with mm -hmm. COVID, I was doing more Zoom AA meetings, which I thought was great. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. You know, I hadn't been willing to go back to in-person meetings. It just, to me, with COVID still flying around, seemed a little too yeah, risky. Yeah. And, you know, given some health concerns within my family, I didn't want to risk any exposure. Um, totally. But... Like I said, I it's the people I really like and, and the program that I still kind of, well, it's it's like a bridle. You know, I don't always respond to it very well. And um, and I think that's, I that's, that. that's the fundamental tension in AA, though. I mean, what is AA? Yeah. Is it the program? Is it the step? Or, or is it the people? And it's a it's a yes okay. and. They're all kind of felted together. And sometimes it's really hard. Yeah. So you have some meetings that are dominated by particular personalities because, well, maybe they're long timers mm -hmm. and they've been there. And then somebody comes along and says, you know, hey, can we switch up? No, this is always how we've done it. Or, yeah, that would be great. You know, let's just lose yeah, the God yeah. language. So, you know, it yeah. really does depend on on place for me. And it also depends on my kind of openness and willingness to, you know, at times just block out some of that language. But I think that's really hard to do early in sobriety. I couldn't do it as a young person. Oh yeah. Right. Well, and, I, and, and I, 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 I picked up the, uh, you know, the, um, the secular, uh, 12 steps. I, I, I looked at, um, you know, I read, read a couple other books about, you know, uh, atheist agnostics and how they, you know, uh, you know, translate the program for them to use. And, you know, and, and I did all those things because I had the God problem. Right? I really had the God problem. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's just funny because, you know, today, like if you hear me talk, you actually hear me say God. But I don't mean the same God that everybody else means. I know that. I, I know that, like, you know, it's just and just like you said with William James, it's like, you know, he believes that there's a higher power, you know, specifically for every person. And I truly believe that in my in in who I am and what I do in my daily life. So that's the stuff that really interested me about what you're doing with William James is you're really trying to make, you know, the um you're trying to lessen the impact that the God problem has for a lot of people. And and for me, like this is something that in my early sobriety that I would have immediately picked up having, you know, like, oh, my gosh, like this is exactly what I need because I need another concept here because mine's not fitting with the traditional Christian God that is being portrayed by a lot of outspoken people, uh, you know, especially in the rooms, mm -hmm. you know, so. Uh, you know, I, I chose, by the way, against some of that stuff to continue to go to AA because I I felt like I needed to be the, the opposite end of that spectrum inside a regular AA meeting. So I chose not to go to secular AA. I chose not to go agnostica, you know, mm -hmm. those types of things. I chose to keep myself planted in the middle of those coming in so that they could see that it's possible to achieve 
what your what William James was was trying to achieve. You know. Yeah, I, and and, so. and I think that's great. I mean, I think that there are so many different roles that those of us who have longer term recovery can play for other people maybe trying to be sober or who are newly yeah. sober. Um, and so I think you know people like you who stay in those rooms and. You know, you're part of those discussions, part of those meetings with the discussion of God and, you know, to to have you as a resource for someone to come to and say, because God language isn't working for me, is absolutely vital. I think that's one of the most important things that we can do for each other. I mean, I think we hold up we hold up mirrors for people who come into those rooms and mirrors mm-hmm. that are not funhouse mirrors, so not convex and concave, <laughs> so you're not stretched in your I don't know if you see me really? no. <laughs> no, but I mean the idea of a plain mirror that, yeah, of course there's always yeah, distortion, yeah. but oftentimes we so lack self-knowledge when we come into those rooms. We think we know everything about us, and we think we know all these deep, dark secrets about our true, distorted, deviant, diabolical, wretched nature that, you know, if only other people knew this about it, they wouldn't want to be anywhere near us. And I think one of the mm-hmm. hardest things, certainly was hard for me, was to hear people offer an honest assessment of what they saw in me, and it was positive. And my attitude was like, no, you're wrong, you're near, or I've got you snowed. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that yeah, yeah, yeah. we need to do that for each other, because one of the ways that, that I feel like I got sober without AA was I had really good friends, and sometimes I could hitchhike almost. I could he- catch, mm-hmm. catch rides with them when I was feeling kind of shaky, you know, not literal rides, but, you know, they would say something to me. So I remember I'd been sober about three years not drinking, and that's when I moved out to Minnesota. And I made some new friends playing tennis because I just play way too much tennis, and I still do, and I played too much back then, but I love it. So there you go. And I met these new friends, and they were great. And so we went out. I think we went to a, um, God, what was the restaurant? Chili's. That's still an existing mm-hmm. chain, isn't it? And yes, it is. we're yes. sitting at the bar and I said, gosh, you know, I haven't had a beer in about three years. I think I really want a beer. And this person I had met only about a month ago and hadn't socialized with said, well, you know, you haven't had a drink in three years. I mean, maybe you just want to, you know, hit the pause button and just wait because maybe there is a reason why you stopped and maybe you don't want to start yeah. up again. And that was a little gift from the universe. You know, in in some ways it was a a gift I gave myself by expressing that out loud. I could have just ordered it Mm because, you know, the geographic cure, nobody knows me here. But I said something and she responded in that kind of way, kind of holding up that mirror. So in some sense, I saw what I had right then at the time. Things were good. I was starting graduate school. I was making new friends. I felt comfortable. And would I want to lose that? No, I wouldn't want to lose Mm -hmm. that. So Mm -hmm. the ways that we do that in those moments that we have when we we do get those gifts are just so precious and they can happen in a variety of contexts. And so, Mm -hmm. again, what I love about AA is that responsibility statement. Yeah. 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 And it's also, you know, how the state of mind in which we're in to receive those types of things, right? You know, you can, and you can uh, yeah, I, I read, um, uh, you know, Viktor Frankl, right? When I was first getting oh, sober yes. too, because mm-hmm. I, I had the problem of like, you know, I, you know, of course, what a wonderful title for a book, like man's search for meaning, you know? <laughs> so, you know, I had to, I saw that title and I was like, I was just thirsty. I'm seeking, right? Because I, I need to know like that, you know, I'm, you know, I have, I, I need a purpose and I need meaning. Right. And I didn't have exactly. any of that stuff before I got sober. Mm-hmm. And and so um, so I read that and I read that in a way in which it was kind of like what what a great gift that was just to see it on a friend's bookshelf and say, hey, what's that? Right. And then, you know, just and you start to engage with those types of things and, um, you know, and it just changes you. And I think that that's the, the, the part of it is like once you start listening, you know, those things come in all the time they are it's all around you and it's always continuing to come around you and i don't that's the thing is i don't even like care to say you know i used to be on the um the the great debate society right like you know you know is there a god is there a god is this coincidence isn't isn't it coincidence and i just stopped i don't i don't care to debate anymore like you know, like i know what it what it feels for me like i know that i am the one 
that is experiencing these things. So it's, you know, again, maybe selfish, but that's really where I sit with it is I can't, you can't convince anybody else. You can't share it differently. You can't, it's really an internal thing. There's nothing more than that. So when I see stuff like this with the William James, I, I, I see his, his attempt to try and do that. You know, you talk about the three people in the book that he focused around the, with the, uh, the addict or the alcoholics that he talks about their spiritual experiences. And, um, and I'm really like, um, you know, I, I can't wait to like read it. I don't know. It's not included in your book, but I really want to go over it. Or is it, is it included in your book? Those, those well, three stories. Um, oh, there, yeah. That, that in, William James's great work that Bill Wilson read, the where he got the idea of hired friendly power. Yeah, yeah. yeah there yeah, so, are three there are three stories that James returns to repeatedly throughout. So one in is varieties. Yeah. In varieties of religious experience. One is Jerry, um yeah. one is S. H. Hadley, who's just a fall down, end of the line drunk. And he's someone who's so drunk, he says, you know, when I can't do something, I'm gonna throw myself in the river. And then he's too drunk to even get to the river. So there's him. There is a young college graduate who, by all accounts, should have everything going on perfectly for him. I mean, the world is his oyster, and he's just drinking all the time. And then the other is someone who goes on, uh, Henri Aline, who goes on to become a Christian minister. But he struggles with the expression at the time was carnal mirth, what we might call uh, sex addiction or hypersexuality. And those three yeah, stories yeah. just are the a dominant thread throughout James's varieties of religious experience that Bill Wilson read right after he had his, you know, gust of spirit conversion experience in the town's hospital back in 1934. But yeah, those stories, and we're always about our stories. I mean, like this whole podcast, mm -hmm, it's about mm -hmm. our yeah, stories yeah. because that's how we connect to other people. That's how we begin to make sense to ourselves as well. I mean, our, our stories, our narratives are always changing because we're always changing. And the ways that we can mm -hmm. understand an event 10 minutes after it happens will be different from how it is 10 years after the fact. And we don't realize, we oftentimes don't realize when something is a pivotal moment until much later. And that's okay. Exactly. And that's what I was, tr I was trying to get from an experiential standpoint. It's like, this is something that, you know, if you don't try to um, grasp, if you're not seeking, quote unquote, if you're not trying to experience it, and especially sober, Right. Then it, it will not come. You know, it will, you know, it'll pass you right by because all the years that I spent drinking, I don't care how um, you know spiritual I was or how, you know, like how well behaved I was or you know, if I read the Bible or if I listened to these all these other things or, you know, whatever it was, it I immediately I could it was like I hit the giant eraser every time I drank. And I don't know if you relate to that, but I mm -hmm. just it could not I could not retain any of the things that had any deeper meaning or value for me personally. And so that's why I say this is a very experiential thing. So when I see William James writing that stuff, I'm very interested in it. But I think that, it, again, I, you know, if I was to read that uh, uh, drunk or, or high, it wouldn't make a difference, you know. But I think reading it sober, it, it allows you to have some, um, some additional uh, tools or connections or, or concepts or to introduce you to a different philosophy that, you know, points your – directing mind or what what you termed as what was it the healthy mind the healthy minded helps direct the healthy mind is what i was saying and, yeah. and to cultivate it so i mean back to your point carl yeah. you know when we're reading things when we are intoxicated and you know in in the abyss of despair and things like that we probably aren't going to be able to take in much of what's there but when we're reading them when we're sober mm -hmm. we are different people so james talked about the ways in which People who fundamentally change his expression, this is 1902, was habitual centers of personal energy. So, I mean, I know that sounds really kind of new agey, wavy gravy, but habitual centers of personal energy. So those of us who are alcoholics or addicts, the habitual center of our energy oftentimes was our, was our using, whether it was the getting, the using, mm -hmm. the recovering, mm -hmm. sort of our friendships might revolve around that. So much of our life maybe becomes reduced to those experiences. But when we mm -hmm. change that habitual center, that's what James calls a conversion. And he says people are, he says, reborn, but that gets so laden with the Christian-centric language, I kind of stay away with it. He says people are mm -hmm. regenerated, they're rejuvenated, they're transformed, they become new people that because they mm -hmm. have a different center of energy. And I think that's a wonderful way to think about 
the difference between addiction and recovery is that your center of energy changes radically from one to another. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean you leave everything behind, nor does it mean you take everything with you, but you come to stand in a different relationship to yourself because you are now so different. And and Mm -hmm. I think that's wonderfully illuminating, but liberating in a kind of way. Because for me, Mm -hmm. it's very optimistic because it says I can do some terrible things in the world, but if I renounce those things, if I come to stand in a different relationship to those things, I don't want to be the person who drinks anymore. I don't want to be the person who falls down at the office party. I don't want to be the person who embarrasses my entire family by showing up drunk on these sorts of things. When I kind of renounce those behaviors, I say, I don't want to be that person anymore. And I'm willing to do things so that I'm not that person. So, you know, mm-hmm. we become who mm-hmm. we are by what we do repeatedly. That's an old insight from the philosopher Aristotle. Yeah, exactly. And so that <laughs> yeah, means I was say. Yeah, yeah. responsibility yeah. to a very large degree comes down to the choices that we're making and the yeah, ways in which the, we decide to suit up and show up. The big book talks about, you know, a, a psychic change, right? You know, and that's kind of the idea of you know, that, that William James talks about or, you know, the regeneration or the, yeah, again, and I, you know, I have my, my sponsor will talk to me on occasion and he'll say stuff like reborn and I just kind of go, Oh dear God, you know, <laughs> like, you know, so, you know, I don't, I, I, um, you know, or, or, I mean, or even, you know, I, you hear people talk in the meetings or born again, or, you know, and they, you know, sometimes they literally mean born again, you know, but, but other times, you know, um, I, th- I think, you know, we, we tend to split hairs a lot on the language. I think that, you know, to step back and to really look at, like, what it truly means from a how-do-you-live-your-life point of view. Like, I got into Stoicism a couple of years ago, and I love mm. Stoicism. It's like it's like the best. How could you and, not? You know, it's fabulous. <laughs> I know. And, and it has a lot of the similarities in terms of, like, I see where, you know, the big book, you know, begged and borrowed and stole from, you know, certain things that it has going on as well. So... Uh, you know, so I totally, um, you know, get into that stuff. And it really is about, um, you know, how you live your life. It is about virtue. It is about, you know, those types of things. And I remember the day, like I was, it was a, like a 4th of July. I was walking with my little girl and she was, uh, you know, the real estate agents put all those little flags in people's yards, oh, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. And, and my little girl, she was like two years old or something. And she was like stealing all the flags that the real estate agent had put in. And she was walking and she was carrying them all. And I was just walking behind her. I was sober. But I, I remember that day so vividly because it was the day that, that I finally looked up and I saw that there was a blue sky. I saw that the grass was greener. And I, I had this real sense that I was now playing for the good team, right? Yeah. Like I was like, I had, I had started on a path of a transition where I was like, I moved from, you know, I guess what would Carl Jung would say, like the shadow self, you know, to the, to the, to the other self, I guess the true self. Right. Uh, and so, um, so that's kind of where I was that false self to the true self. And I started that, that day I knew specifically I was moving. I was on a different trajectory than I had ever been in my entire life. Yeah. And that, um, I mean, you're, you're channeling William James. I mean, who talks about after one of these conversions or after say an intentional commitment, I'm not going to do these things anymore. We experience the world differently because we're different. And he goes even further and says, and the world's different too. So where before mm-hmm. you might have always seen something as a, you know, a possible bad thing to happen, you now see it as an opportunity. On the one hand, it's the same mm-hmm. thing. But on the other hand, it's not. But you you have that sense of a friendly connection with the broader world, including this gorgeous blue sky and this beautiful mm-hmm. green lawn that my daughter is systematically pulling all the little flags out of. Um, and that, <laughs> But you could kind of appreciate that where you couldn't when you were drinking. You're different and the mm-hmm. world is different. And freedom mm-hmm. and the kind of elation that goes along with no longer feeling like, you know, you're either out to get yourself or everything in the world seems hostile to you yeah. in a kind of yeah. way. Yeah. So you go from yeah. being in a very encroached defensive position, sometimes trying to launch the preemptive strike to yeah, you know, yeah. opening yeah. your hands yeah. up because you're no longer need to clasp so tightly. You can, you can hold more in your hands and mm-hmm. how fantastic a gift of recovery is that? 
yeah, it's it's some people call um, you know addiction alcoholism like a disease of perception, and it literally um, can be that disease of perception. I I know that uh, you know I exactly what you're saying. Like you know I saw the world as out to get me. I played the victim. I you know I uh, you know everything was mine, mine, mine. <laughs> you know so I I really played that part to the T. You know so um, so today I, I uh, it's so weird. That's how I say it's so experiential. It's like it's great to have the knowledge, but until you actually step in, like you know, you get the idea of how to hit a baseball. You know, you swing the bat, you 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 hit the ball, right? Uh, but um, but until you actually step into the batter's box and experience a you know hundred mile an hour pitch, yeah, I mean, you have no idea how to swing and hit a ball. So, and I think that that's the real. The, uh, I think that's the message that I would try to communicate to people is that it's great to have the knowledge and especially like with your book, it's like I see this very much for people like me in my first year of recovery. Had this been written, I would have absolutely purchased this because I, I, I was reading the big book. I heard about William James. I heard about varieties and it sounds like a really, you know, book for very, you know, thinky brain, big people. Right. So I'm like, I'm not going to pick it up you know, <laughs> because you know, it'd be just a waste of money on my shelf. But when I see something like this, it gives me an introduction in terms of the concepts, in terms of where he was headed. It it lets me like see like, you know, where the, the community that I'm joining has has come from a little bit, mm-hmm. like, you know, over the last 80 years, you know, or 100 years. So, um, so it gives me a, a you know some sort of uh, history or culture or connection to those things that came before me, so I can have a better understanding of how to move forward for myself. And so, I would have totally picked this book up just to have the concepts of this alone, and to know that I also wasn't the only one who felt or thought this way. So, um, to really appreciate seeing oh, well, something like this out in the into the wild as well. It, it so, was written um, for it was written for people like us. You know, and I think there are yeah. a lot of us who struggle in this kind of way. And, you know, for all of my misgivings about AA, I think AA is magnificent. I think it is wonderful mm-hmm. for for the number of people for whom it works. And, you know, Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob, although really Bill Wilson did write Alcoholics Anonymous all by himself. Let's not yeah, pretend yeah. otherwise. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. That, you know, say the ninth step promises, for example, what does life look like? You know, a Mm -hmm. lot of that language you can find in James and, you know, James talks about what happens to that whole raft of obstructions and all those worries and all those grievances. He said they're um, broken like bubbles and severed like cobwebs. They're just gone. And, it, Mm, you know, that's a beautiful William James is, is so lovely because he's so good at detailing human suffering, which he knew from the inside. I mean, his whole family suffered from pretty significant mental illnesses. I was reading, I, I was into that chapter and I, yeah. I totally, I, I, that's the other thing is, so I'm in ACA as well, which is adult children of alcoholics. And we talk about the, the generational nature of, you know, alcoholism. We talk about passing on the disease of, of dysfunction, right? And it is a very similar understanding that I see is that, you know, though you may not pick up a drink, you can certainly have alcoholic tendencies. You know, it's something that I, um, you know, was very aware of growing up. So, uh, you know, I saw, I saw it in my uh, my mother and I, you know, I saw it in other people that were, you know, in my influence. So it definitely has an impact. So it's not without saying that, you know, um, you, know you can get raised and brought up in, in a quote unquote dysfunctional slash alcoholic-ish, you know, a, a, a family impacted by the disease of alcoholism, you know, I think. And, and I think idea. that's true for people so, who no yeah. longer drink, but who maybe are just, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know what I think about the expression white knuckling, but I mean, the person who yeah. stops drinking and resents the hell out of it stays in that attitude of grievance. You know, I only have to do this because of the wife, yeah, you know, yeah. I, all yeah. of that, <clears throat> that is going to be the <laughs> axis around which family dynamics turn. So, you know, it, mm-hmm. it can be as formative, even if someone were to say, yeah, but I never drank. But yeah, you still had a lot of the behaviors and the attitudes and the rest of us were left trying to figure out what kind of mood are you in mm-hmm. that it, it goes to show the way in which, you know, alcoholism isn't just about the imbibing of alcohol, but it's about mm-hmm. your know, whole orientation in the world and, and how you meet the world, whether it's with that attitude of grievance or whether it's an attitude of gratitude. You know, that kind yeah, of expanding to, the world in, you know. 
not so being the entire. We talked mind. a little bit about the the like the healthy mind, but then you talk about like the six souls. Can you explain like what you uh, when you uh, like what William James or like you even uh, talked about the six souls? Uh, so so descriptor what, here, chapter yeah, four. So William James, in many ways arguably is the father of American psychology. He founded the psychology department at Harvard in the late 1800s. He was the first appointment in that department. And he really divided the world into two categories. And he said, you know, they're not absolutely mutually exclusive. People have a mix of these two categories in them and people can move throughout the course of their life. But in general, he said, there are two types of people. There are the healthy minded who um, he's got all these great descriptors of them, but they're the people who always see the world in the best possible way. They're the glass half full. Hate those people. I can't. And the glass half people. full was something really <laughs> yummy, you know. And they, they, everything they see with a sky blue tint. And he at one point says, you know, they're the people who are born with a bottle of champagne to their credit. You know, just those people for whom they're sun. They're they, they live sort of above always their point of tolerance for misery, their misery threshold. Mm. There are those people. And I am actually one of those people. So you oh, know, nice. I'm, a, I'm a total sunny sider. <laughs> I am an optimist. Yes. And then he said, but there are the six souls. And he said, that's actually a much bigger category. And that category was really familiar to him because his whole family was in there. And he said, mm -hmm. you know, these people with six souls, they tend to have divided selves. They want inconsistent, if not contradictory things. They start to, he's got about five stages of them. You know, he says, um, there are people for whom something that had brought some joy no longer does. Joy chilled. You know, oh, I used to mm. love doing these things, but eh. And then he said, the next level <laughs> down is joy destroyed. It's like, uh, I, I don't even like that anymore. I'm giving away all my golf clubs or I'm giving away, you know. And he huh. says, those two things can be fixed. They're manageable because it's got to do the issue with is my attitude and how I'm meeting something in the world. You know, I don't see the world as hostile, but there's something really off in me. And it's like, I, I just, I hate this shit. I don't want to do it anymore. Mm -hmm. Then it gets progressively worse. He says, there are those people who can feel no pleasure anymore in the natural goods of friendship or love or romance. They're the people who start to kind of emotionally flatline where everything becomes at best a total beige you know, it's kind of monochromatic. Yeah, yeah. And then as we a go malaise. down. I like to call it a malaise. The malaise. The malaise. <laughs> yeah, the malaise of and, life. <laughs> you know, but they're just kind of, they're, they're, they're flat turning towards bitter and grievance. And he says, and then there are the people with active anguish. I hate my life. I hate the choices I've made. You know, I hate, I can't stand. You know, the person who mm. is always going to feel like, you know, they're the victim or the world is out to get them. The person who's maybe walking a beautiful trail in nature and trips on a tree root and blames the tree root, you know, like as if the tree root was out to get them. And then he says, yeah, yeah. there's the panic fear. That's the fear where there's nothing good or valuable in the world. And it's just an absolutely horrifying place. And this is where you, where you meet William James at his most vulnerable because the example he uses of panic fear is his own example as a young physician in Germany in an, in an asylum for the insane, insane, where he meets probably an epileptic patient who is just rocking back and forth and is terribly discontent. And William James says, mm. you know, that shape am I, that, that's where I am. Mm. And at that point, William James is seriously contemplating suicide. Um, mm. And he said, the reason I didn't, though, was I made a very intentional choice to believe in free will, that my actions actually could have an effect on me and on the world. And he said, my belief in free will was a kind of faith. And that faith is just merely a willingness to live on possibility and maybes where I don't know what the results are going to be in advance. Mm. So mm. he decided that he was just going to try to believe that he had some agency, some ability to make choices unto himself, that it wasn't a foregone conclusion, that he would die or that he would kill himself. And he pulled out of that really significant, probably what would be called now clinical depression. He pulled out of it, but his whole yeah. life, it was always there in his periphery. And sometimes it would creep back into varying degrees. And, you know, a couple of his siblings were exactly like that too. So he knew that acute suffering 
And he said, these are the six souls, but these are the people perhaps who might be most susceptible to a kind of regeneration or rebirth or rejuvenation. It's possible if they can find something bigger than themselves that will help them mm -hmm. to move from the hunched down, clamped down view of the world to becoming more expansive. So it's an interesting yeah, distinction. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, Bill Wilson also had a very similar, you know, issue, right? Bill Wilson had, was very uh, depressed. They, he talks about that in a lot of his stuff and his like language of the heart stuff. He talks about uh, uh, we talked about an article, the New Frontier. The last author that I talked with, uh, Doctor Berger, uh, you know, his whole you know uh, book was on like a uh, you know emotional sobriety, right? Because that seemed that is like the next frontier in terms of uh, you know what it really. You know, after you get physical recovery, you're really talking about emotional uh, sobriety. So I, um, you know, I, I see all that stuff. And again, I, you know, I'm like, I still feel like a very much an infant. You know, I just got eight years, uh, you know, sober. Uh, back congratulations. In that is a long Thank time. You. Yeah. And, well, it's the longest I've ever been sober. And if you think even including when I was a little kid, I was drunk at like, you know, eight years old. So it um, happens. So it, it does happen, especially around my parents. But, uh, um, you know, so that's the thing is it, I still feel like, you know, I have a long ways to go in terms of seeing this stuff. And, um, you know, in and yeah, I guess uh, uh, that's why I'm so attracted to this stuff. It really does help me to continue to seek. It really does help me to keep it top of mind to know that, like, there is more to learn. And when I see, you know, I mean, kudos to you on this book, because this is like an effort. I don't know how many books you had to read in order to like get to this. How long did it take you to write this book anyway? Uh, this book has been my problem child. It's my problem manuscript. I would pick it up and work on it and then put it away and not look at it for years. So this book actually yeah. had its origin about 10 years ago. And I worked on it and then I didn't look at it again for another seven or eight years. And then I took it out again wow. Wow. and uh, it got rejected at some publishers and I put it away, but something kept saying, no, 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 no. There's too much in William James. William James has too much to offer. And I, and I switched the focus and I just decided I'm not going to say no for the publishers by never submitting it. And I happened to find a lovely publisher who had an acquisitions editor who got it right off the bat, what I was trying to do yes, and why yes, it was yeah. important to really expand that notion of higher power to be far more expansive and inclusive. And she got it. And so working with her was just a dream. But this book, it's the problem child. But I think you ask many parents and they might say, sometimes we love the problem child the most because we've almost <laughs> lost that child or we've seen what yeah, they've come yeah. back from. And so yeah. this book- Or we in, know what they're capable of doing and that's yes. amazing that they're still here. <laughs> exactly right. So yeah, yeah this, this had sure, a very long, sure. twisty process. And I'm glad for that process though. I mean, at the time it was very, very frustrating, but I'm, I'm glad mm -hmm. that I trusted my gut. So that's back to one of my earlier comments about self-trust. I trusted myself enough mm -hmm. to say, stick with it. Do not just keep this as a folder on your desktop that you dutifully move every time you get a computer. you got to keep going with it. And I had good friends yeah, who read drafts and who supported me and, you know, played tennis with me and listened to me rant and rave. I mean, it's very much of a, of a collaborative process with my friends. A lot of good conversations over dinner across it, the net on the tennis court all of that you did think a, a billy jean that's not the billy jean is it <laughs> well yes because my <laughs> friends and i on that friday group we've got a billy jean king doll about this tall and we put it up on the scorecard when we play <laughs> so we can so that we can channel the great legend billy jean channel the she, billy jean Channel Billie Jean, because she was my hero, hands down, oh, yeah. growing up. Okay. Yep. So <laughs> I just I just think that that was great. So uh, so then so then talk to me about, because uh, one of the things that you do throughout this whole thing is you kind of, you weave in your experience throughout this whole thing. You weave out your opinions and your, you know, how you put this all together. I really enjoy how it's written. I really do. Uh, it, it gives you like a really good insight to not only William James, but also your understanding of William James, right? You actually, you, you weave yourself into the book. It's not just yeah. a, you know, a, 
a clinical look at William James's right. life. It's ding, not ding, just ding, like ding, some ding, weird ding. biography. Yeah. yeah, yeah, because that's important. Because I think, and so this goes back to you know why don't you use your title more? Um, I don't like using my title on things that I do with addiction because am I an expert? I don't know. Maybe on my own addiction, have I have I read a fair amount? Yeah, but I'm always. I, I, I'm wary even of the descriptor on my on my website. It's like, oh, I'm not sure I can put that on there. Um, you know, expert <laughs> in addiction. I was like, yeah, you should be an asterisk, yeah. my own. Um, but it's it's important. I think we all know that having the kinds of experiences that we share as a consequence of us being alcoholics or addicts, that that's my qualification. More than, or at least just as much as, whatever my academic qualifications might be. And so that's why in that book, I'm very careful with pronouns across the board. We who struggle, we who are addicted, I am, I'm one of us. I am not the expert looking down and making pronouncements. And William James never was in Variety's religious experience either. He did not set himself apart from the people he was talking to or the people he was talking about. He did not act as the great interpreter or arbiter of meanings. And I think that that's one thing that Alcoholics Anonymous really got right, that we're there as equals. Mm. We are there as equal Mm -hmm. participants. We're not there. Even if you've got physicians in an AA meeting, they're not there as a physician. They're there as an alcoholic or an addict. And that's how Mm -hmm. they are in the rooms. And I think Bill Wilson was very wise and the other founders of AA was very wise to make sure that there didn't come to be a quasi expert based therapeutic dynamic in AA meetings. Now, of course, it gets complicated by AA allowing the 12 steps to be used as a program in in and outpatient treatment. I mean, that's where things Mm -hmm. get a little murky, in my opinion. But your garden variety AA meeting were equals. And the newly sober person, the person sobered for 53 years, we're on par with each other. We all have something to learn from one another. And that's how I kind of treat this book, having conversations with people who read it, who, who find something in there and they interpret it in a certain way that I never would have. I am constantly learning from people when I talk about this book. So listening to you talk about what you found interesting, I'm like, ah, I didn't. Mm. Did I mean that? I think that's better than what I meant. <laughs> Things like that. Well, yeah. yeah, I, I, I can't wait to to read it more. I really can't. Like that's the idea behind it is, uh, uh, you know, again, all these things are just more like uh, it helps me to know myself better by reading these types of things. Because how do I respond to it? I love having the conversations. And by the way, I was never a reader before I got sober. I, it's funny because like the, I, I mean, if if it was a if it was a manual about like how to code something or if it, you know, it's like I, I was in it. Like I was like, I was great. Like if it was a very you know, utility kind of a read for me, like if I could apply it immediately after reading it, I would do it. And I could, but if it came down to like you know me using my thinky brain to even think about Carl, you know, <laughs> for ten minutes, I didn't want to do it. I didn't. I didn't want. You know, I did not want to explore that side of me. So when I uh, I got sober, I read uh, the big book, and I read it. Uh, I read the 164 in the first in my first weekend sober, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and um, not my first weekend sober, like my first weekend after a meeting, and um, and I I, I started to understand. Like there, there was more to it, and uh, and I just really started to get into it. So, I think it was really important to to read from that standpoint of like that I don't know, and I so I love the idea of getting into something like this, and you know, and just being you know more knowledge. And I know that quote unquote self knowledge does not gain, yeah, you know, does not get you everything, right? Um, but boy, but it, it does get you half the way there. It gets you, it gets you so much. And self-knowledge is yeah, yeah. kind of treated like it belongs on the island of misfit toys, like self-knowledge yeah, yeah. And, and self-love and self-forgiveness. I mean, those are three really crucial things that, you know, addiction saps all of those. But I think even in, you know, the quote unquote healthy populations, I don't think a lot of us are very good at, at identifying when it's appropriate for us to forgive ourselves. I mean, oftentimes Mm -hmm. I think you hear this in a lot of meetings that um, we who are addicts, even in recovery, we struggle with self-forgiveness. 
I mean, we struggle with, Mm -hmm. you know, asking forgiveness from others or getting it or accepting it. But it takes a lot for us to forgive ourselves. And at some point, we do have to forgive ourselves. If we're constantly Mm -hmm. just, you know, executing punitive measures on ourselves, well, that's going to keep us trapped in certain kinds of ways. And it's not a letting yourself off the hook in any ways. But I mean, I think of self-forgiveness, forgiveness in general, but self-forgiveness in particular, it's a kind of a repair and restoration um, kind of work. And things that are repaired oftentimes can be stronger than what they were originally. And what a great thing yeah, we you get have to, to do. You, ironically, on page 164 of your book is forgiving yourself. So, <laughs> uh, Funny that. so you have, yeah, you have these topics in there. So, um, so, and that's, I guess that's, you know, kind of part of it. Like, that's why I say like you weave this stuff in there. It's your experience with these things as well. So I think that you have a message to carry as well as a story to tell. And I think that that is the the beauty of what you got going on here. And it really just, you know, uh, it's going to contribute overall to the overall community of recovery. I think that that's, like I say, when I, getting this interview, I was like, Chris is great because it hits all my recovery buttons. Because it's not only, it's, you know, it's community, it's overall. You start to address all these things very on a very personal level. You start to reach towards, uh, you know, the spirituality of what William James is going after. You know, the the total self of, you know, mind, body, and spirit. You know, those all types together. of things. It's, yep. it's a really inclusive look. Yeah, it's a really inclusive look. And I really enjoy it. I really do. Well, so thanks, far. Carl. I really, so I don't know. Really I could end up hating that. it. I could end up giving you it a one star do, later on. But you know. if you do, let let me know, and then then I would love to hear about why. Yeah. I mean, because every book has its limitations. Yeah. Things got left out. I say some things yeah. that yeah. others might disagree oh, with. Yeah. But I, yeah. I think your point of you know becoming a reader and becoming a thinker, and again trusting yourself mm. to think that what you think is good, that you can think well, mm. that you get to think. I mean, I think mm-hmm. oftentimes we do have to learn how to think and, and trust our ability mm-hmm. to think. Well, even in the big book, it says, you know, God gave us brains for a reason, right? You know, because, you know, I mean, if you're on that belief, you know, side of life, there you go, right? You know, and I, again, we're, you know, I, I don't mean to be uh, uh, you know, very uh, religious or, you know, spiritual in that way, but the idea for me is that, you know, it's, it's the thing that I need. It's the thing that saved me, got me this far, right? Being able to think this way. But the one thing that I tend to do, which is kind of like my ACA background, is I, I what used to serve me no longer serves me. And I have to, uh, quote unquote, know thyself. You know, like uh, you talk about in your book here. It's like I absolutely need to take the time to stop and know thyself. Because as we talked about earlier in the in the podcast here is that um you know we're different people we're always changing you know uh, you know the the same person never steps in the same river twice that's kind of how that works you know so you mm-hmm. must be you know constantly stopping to evaluate your needs and where you are today and um and i think that's where um but that brings us to uh, uh you know towards the um towards the end of the book you talk about uh, you know being in a a state of uh, a gratitude right oh, a gratitude over uh, grievance as well. So um, is that, um, I'm hoping that you can include, um, you know, some of that in our uh, members only section. Uh, I, I, I think about. that's Hopefully. exactly what we included in your members only <laughs> section, because it's really gratitude and grieving, or gr- gratitude and grievance are living attitudes. And they're not just little mm-hmm. emotions that wash through us, but they are the fundamental lenses through which we meet the world. And then the world meets us. And mm-hmm. it's utterly exhausting being full of grievance all the time. It's, it's debilitating. Yeah. You know, it drains. Whereas gratitude, I think, fills and expands us. It's generative. It gives us more opportunities. And, you know, one of the things that addiction does is it forecloses opportunities and forecloses possibilities to only the worst possibilities. Whereas gratitude is is opening multiple options. And yes, sometimes you have to choose between options that are competing. You can't get it all, but you get something and you're grateful for what you have. I mean, it's, I definitely want to spend the rest of my days as someone who has gratitude as the, as the keynote in my life. No more grievance. Exactly. Not as, exactly. You know, it's just, it yeah, drains I and I don't want that. I don't want that anymore. Yeah, what is it? Uh, there's like the uh, there's some quote, and I forget who who is uh, it Heraclitus or I don't know who it was. It said uh, the soul is dyed uh, the color of its thoughts, right? So that's oh the, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a it's a Stoic 
thing. And, you know, I never really got that. I was talking to a friend moreover with, uh, and she was like, you know, cause I'm a very negative person in general. Like I am, I am definitely a negative. You wouldn't know it by just listening to this podcast. I wouldn't know from this. Really no. Did. So go ahead. Tell me more, yeah. Carl. But I, I, I'm definitely a negative person, but, um, but she's always like stopping me in my tracks to be like, well, no, like, don't say it. Like rephrase that. Like you're, you're thinking wrong. And I would just be like, wow, because it, it really helps to have friends like that. Well, there <laughs> as, you as, go. You know, yep. uh, Exactly. So, and I think that, you know, for me and, you know, when you hear, there's a certain level of it though, you know, it's like, I can only hear like, you know, you just need an attitude of gratitude ever so much, you know, especially when everything is going wrong around me, you know, but, uh, uh, but there are days when I absolutely do surprise myself and I'm staying in gratitude. Currently, I'm uh, uh, doing 100 days of gratitude on Instagram, which I, I just wake up oh. every day and mm -hmm. find something from the previous day that, you know, I was grateful for, and I, I take a picture. So every day I'm looking for something unique to take a picture of that gives me something to, to post about gratitude. So it really does help and it really does change your perspective. So we've, on the podcast, we focused a lot on gratitude because right. it seems like we focus a lot where I lack. <laughs> I wonder why well, that is. Well, and it's so, it's, it's so yeah. interesting, the things for which we can now feel gratitude that if you had said to us when we were drinking, Oh, you'll be grateful for that. We would have been like, what the hell is wrong with you? Yeah. And, yeah. you know, the things that, that I'm, I'm grateful now, I really can't believe that I'm grateful for, but, but I truly am. And, mm -hmm. and I wouldn't want to change it. And, and that includes being an alcoholic. I'm not just grateful for my mm -hmm. recovery. Of course I am. I'm, I'm grateful for this limiting condition. That's how I talk about it. I don't say it's a disease. I don't say it's a choice. It's a limiting condition. And we yeah, all have yeah. different limiting conditions. Yeah. And I'm grateful for it because I think it makes me be more attuned to the suffering of others. And it makes me kind of keep my eyes on a horizon that are beyond me, you know. And I, I think as a teacher, you know, that's sort of my day job. As a teacher, yeah. that's really important that, that I see how my students are struggling and suffering and that I'm attuned to that. Because mm -hmm. if you're attuned to your own suffering... You're definitely attuned to other people's suffering because you, you, if you can't understand your own, you certainly can't understand somebody else's. And so yep, that's, the, that's the right. stuff that I've, yeah, I've learned a lot about. Um, uh, you know, initially as I sat in the rooms, I, uh, I would see people suffering and I would feel it somehow, right? And I was like, oh, my God, I'm feeling this. Like, they're crying. I'm going to start to cry, right? And then, uh, um, and then I, you know, as I, as I started to understand it, like, and I see it more in myself, it was kind of like the reverse started to happen is like, I, because I could care about them, I suddenly started to care about myself. Mm -hmm. uh, and then as I cared about myself and started to learn more and know thyself and to thine own self be true kind of stuff, I, uh, I was then able to start helping others. And it was that really weird way, you know, of like, just that, that, that connection of that bouncing back and forth in order to, uh, to get free. So, so yeah, I um I definitely do not want to be a grievance centered person. <laughs> I definitely don't. I'm definitely looking for more gratitude. I guess um you know we do at the end of our uh, episodes uh, questions. Um I guess you know would you have a a, a question? Uh, I'd hate to put you on the spot, but you know I'll edit if you take too long to answer. But we do questions at the end of our episodes. Is like um you know like this last week was uh we did about uh, medications and um. Uh, uh, Chelsea talked about being California sober. Have you ever heard that term? I've California heard that expression. Sober? Yeah. I, you know, I, I think, I think it's interesting. Yeah. Abstinence I, has been so, the dominant model. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That, and, and, I, and, and harm I just never heard of California sober. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, so what is that? That yeah. you don't use your drug of choice, but you can use other drugs so long as you it does You could use weed. Impair. You can smoke, smoke weed as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, you know? Or if like it it's okay to not yourself. do that. Yeah. Yeah, I th yeah. Right. Yeah. I th I think there has to be room for those kinds of discussions because I want harm yeah. reduction to be a viable yeah. alternative for people. And so, if someone was a real raging alcoholic, and they cut down on their drinking, and maybe they do smoke some pot, but not to terrible ill effect, I still want to take that as a win of a certain sort. Harm reduction it, is yeah. got to be a win. So I think yeah, we, the abstinence is the right choice for some people i'm wary of saying that it is the only choice i think there are as many mm -hmm. ways to be sober and be in recovery 
as there are ways to become addicted to something. So I want to be careful not to kind of use the power of, of, uh, of a platform to say, well, that's not real recovery or that's not good enough. I'm not in that business, yeah, nor yeah. should anyone else be in yeah, that yeah. business. Yeah, I, I, I tend to have an opinion. And so that's where I, <laughs> I tend to express it. But you're right. Is, uh, you know, I think one of the things is I, I also just would like to classify it so that you know, people don't like, you know, so you're not like, first of all, getting to know somebody, and then you go hang out with them and you're not one of those people that can handle weed. And, you know, sure enough, you're setting yourself up to be, you know, with another person that, you know, I yep. just would like people to be honest about it. You know, um, that was that was my whole thing. So um, so if you had a question for this episode, because our last question was like, if you're California sober, why are you? Right. And then so in this in this episode, I guess, what would you what kind of a question would you have for people listening that you would want to see a result on? Um, do you have a question in mind? What do you find as a higher power? I mean, what is your higher power? I'm always so intrigued by what's a higher power for some people. So I have artist friends who talk about color mm-hmm. and the ability to create art mm-hmm. or music, mm-hmm. you know, and, and there's the familiar, you know, oh, group of drunks, that's my God. I'm so yeah, curious yeah, yeah what for each person functions as a higher power and, and how they engage with it, how that, that, how that power helps to expand them and expand their world. That would be my question. That's awesome. So, um, so what is your higher power and how do you engage with it? Fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. Awesome. So I guess that's it. That's where we're at. That's the end of the show. That's, that's, that's it. That's all that we do. So, um, uh, so I just would like to say thank you very much, uh, Doctor O'Connor, for coming. <laughs> I really, you had to get I really that in there. Didn't you? Yeah. I, I, well, I get. I got so excited again. Uh, just you know, after what I was reading, I was like, oh my gosh, I couldn't wait for this. So, um, but so thank you very much for coming. Thank Thanks you for, for participating. Me. Great. If you ever need, you know, if you ever have another book coming out, let me know. I definitely would love to have you on. I would uh, love to yeah, come and, back um, on. Well, thank you. And for everybody else listening, uh, we will be back next week with um, Chelsea and I. And we were getting, we are reading Living Sober, the book. It's not that stimulating, but we're reading Living Sober, the book. Uh, And actually, we're getting into Chapter 22, Eliminating Self-Pity. Hey, go figure. Talk about those those greedy people. (laughs) All right. See you guys. Stay active. Stay sober. See ya. Thank you.